All right, for those who are gathering in, the only announcement that I know of tonight is this Saturday night, and I hope that we can have a a good turnout. I think that the film will be good. It's got a good spiritual lesson to it. It's historically based, and so we look forward to that. And also, it's a good time for people to uh, get to know each other, and I think that's important. I know that occasionally I have people uh, that I'm talking to, and I will say, well, you know so-and-so. And they said, no, I have no idea who that is. Well, you sit right in front of them. <laughs> that's not a good thing. Um, so it's, it, it is good to get to know if Scripture says that we are to... Uh, pray for one another and encourage one another. That involves talking to one another, getting to know who the one another are in the congregation. And so that's good. We're not exactly a congregation of 5,000 where you can hide in anonymity, although some people try to do that. <clears throat> How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayers. We've been studying in our series on worship. It's foundational from the very beginning that sin needs to be dealt with before we can worship God. And that is why confession has been a part of worship, uh, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament and throughout much of the church age. Even though uh, there's not much instruction on it, if you go to most churches that follow some sort of uh, what we would usually call a liturgy, but everybody has a liturgy. Some just have an informal liturgy. Some have a more formal liturgy. But in those with a more formal liturgy, there's usually always start with a prayer of confession, although it's generic. And what Scripture says, if we confess our sins, it doesn't say, if we confess that we are sinful or if we confess that we are sinners, it doesn't say that. It says if we confess our sins when we get... Uh, so therefore, it means that we're to tell God or admit what our sins are. They're not necessarily the big ones. It's just, you know, small things, you know, a little road rage here and there. I know I'm not talking to anybody in this congregation, Um but we have all kinds of things that happen during the day. We get upset, we get angry, we get fearful, we feel insecure, we, feel, we don't trust God, all kinds of things. We gossip, we uh, talk about people behind their back, all kinds of things that are sins. And we confess those sins, we admit to them, and God instantly cleanses us, forgives us of those sins, and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So we have a few moments of silent prayer to to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that they are in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, tonight as we come together, we're reminded that you are a holy God. You are the God who created all things. And as a holy God, you're unique, you're distinct, you're one of a kind. And you are perfect in your righteousness and your justice. And as we come together to worship you, this is not some common experience, but we come to reflect our submission to you, our desire to learn your word, to think about who you are more profoundly, that that will impact our thinking and impact our lives. Our Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight and continue our study of worship, you'll help us to understand these trends, these different things that are introduced as we go through Genesis that become central to worship down through the Old Testament and on into the New Testament. Though the forms may change a little, the basic ideas are present and continue down 
in the worship of the church age. Help us to understand these things and their application for us. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Open, well, you don't need to open your Bibles yet. We're studying worship. We're going to get into Abraham and Jacob. And if the pastor is not too long-winded on some aspects of this, then we might make it through the end of Genesis today, but I wouldn't hold your breath. You never know what, what is going to come up. So we have been studying in the last few lessons about worship in the perfect state of paradise before there's any sin. And then what happens when sin is introduced and how that breaks fellowship with God and then how God introduces what is necessary in order to restore that fellowship. Now, what we see in these rather terse chapters, and, and as I pointed out many times, there's a lot more that's going on in these chapters than, are, than we're told about. Uh, we could probably fill a whole book of 50 or 60 chapters just talking about what happens in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that we're not told about. But what we do see is that certain things start to be introduced in Genesis chapter 3 and 4. We're not told why. We're not told how they learned about some things. And it continues that way through Genesis. We will see the introduction of sacrifice with uh, the burnt offering with, with uh, Noah and that it involves clean animals, but we never learn how Noah came to understand what were clean animals and what were unclean animals. There are other things that happen along the way, and we're not told how these things came into practice, so we must assume that there was divine revelation that introduced these things into practice, because as we go forward out of Genesis and into Exodus and the Mosaic Law, we see that that many of these practices become legislated and are integral to the worship of the temple of the tabernacle and the temple in the age of Israel during the dispensation of the law and then many of them become part of the worship of the church they change their form and structure a little bit because they're not we're not worshiping at a tabernacle or a temple anymore we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and so there are there are changes, but there's certain principles that go and proceed and endure throughout all of the dispensations. So one thing we learned in Genesis, Genesis 3 is that failure to know the Word leads to a breakdown in worship. Now that's really important because when we talk about failure to know the Word, one of the things that... that we ended with last time was this idea of calling on the name of the Lord. And that begins with the descendants of of Seth at the end of Genesis chapter 4. And we talked about that, that that is really proclamation about who God is and what he's done. It is teaching about the character and the attributes of God, talking about his essence and praising him for his essence. And so that proclamation is integral to the reception of revelation from God so that we can talk and proclaim about his essence. In fact, in many cases, as we look at instances of worship, as we go through Genesis, there is a preceding appearance, theophany, revelation of God through dreams, through visions, through theophanies, prior to the response of of the worship. So worship is always related to revelation, to content, to uh, the details of what God has revealed. It's not people just generating their own. There's another path that I'm not going to spend a lot of time tracing. I'll mention it here and there as we go along. And that's the development of false worship. And that has its history uh, through the period before the flood of Noah and also afterward that takes many of the ideas 
that we see present in the scripture and then distorts and and perverts them. So the first thing we learn is when, because Eve doesn't know exactly what God has said and her reiteration of what God said in regard to the prohibition, um, because of that ignorance, she is duped, deceived by the serpent, and so that causes that breakdown in worship in the in the garden. Second, that sin must first be dealt with before worship can take place. After that sin, before man can have that rapport with God restored, God had to cover Adam and Eve with animal skins. And I, I pointed out that the word there is a complete covering, and I think that's a picture of the imputation of righteousness based on a, a substitutionary sacrifice. And so it foreshadows what ultimately will take place at the cross. But this idea of sacrifice is necessary in order to deal with the sin problem so that that relationship, that rapport with God can be restored. The third thing that we have learned is that worship is defined by God and not by man. And it's not based on how we feel. Again and again, we see so many examples throughout history as well as in our own culture where worship is defined by how somebody feels about God. It lifts me up. It makes me feel closer to God. That doesn't have anything to do with it. There's a lot of people who feel very close to whatever divine thing they worship in Buddhism, in Hinduism, in New Age mysticism, whatever it is. It makes people feel better. But that isn't the biblical criterion. The biblical criterion is it has to be in line with what God has uh, has revealed. We see that worship is based on sacrifice because of sin. There's definitely the indication that develops that that sacrifice has something to do with the payment of sin, and we don't really see that that uh, really developed until later. We see the, the implication of a sacrifice at the end of Genesis 3. We see uh, Cain and Abel bringing an offering to God at the beginning of Genesis 4. We see a sacrifice by Noah at, when they get off of the ark. We'll talk a little bit more about that. We see Abraham moving through the land and building altars where there's a sacrifice and he makes proclamation in the name of the Lord all through Genesis. But there's just this progressive revelation that takes place as we learn more and more about worship. But remember, when Israel receives the Pentateuch, when Moses is writing this, when they receive it, they already have a a much more sophisticated, informed knowledge of sacrifice by 1446 B.C. So it isn't news to them. So when he's writing, there's an assumption that they know what he's talking about long before the, the narrative or the story uh, defines it and and fully explains it. And then last we saw that worship leads to the proclamation of God's character. It explains who God is, that that it's not just, and we'll, I'll develop this a little more uh, tonight, it's not just the ritual, because that's what a lot of people do. They put the significance in the ritual. And one of the things that we see happening in a lot of churches today is that they have these forms that developed in, in uh, Judaism and in Christianity, and they do those but they don't un- believe or understand the f- foundational reasons for those forms anymore. They don't believe in prayer, so they go through various mystical exercises. There's incense and there's candles, and there's nothing wrong with incense and candles. But they don't explain they don't have any idea where that came from. They don't have any idea why they do that. They just do it because the ritual in and of itself has has significance. And what we see in Scripture is that ritual had to be explained. It's like general general revelation. General revelation, the heavens declare the glory of God. But you have to have special revelation to truly interpret general revelation because nonverbal pictures can only go so far in communicating something. There has to be specificity in revelation to understand what it what it truly means so that ritual without 
explanation. Ritual without understanding just is 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 empty. We talked about uh, sacrifice. We talked a little bit about the significance of sacrifice and what is important about sacrifice, that sacrifice is inherent to having a relationship with God. And a couple of things have come out of this, that fundamentally sacrifice is something we bring to God, something we offer to God, and it's not to be done to be observed by other people. It is private. It is done uh, as a sign of submission and for the purpose of exalting God. And it's not done for the purpose of exalting ourselves. This is where, in the time of Jesus, the Pharisees got things out of kilter because it was all about them and their show of their sacrifice, the show of giving, the show of how many times a day they prayed. And in the... (coughs) In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus um, rebukes them for that because he said that prayer and giving should be done in private because the only person that is that is needs to be needs to see that is God and not man. We're not doing it for for human approval. Second thing we learn about sacrifice is it's viewed as a gift. We are giving something to God. It's a token of gratitude. To God, and so as we see the sacrifices in Genesis chapter three, where Cain and Abel bring these mincha sacrifices to God, that they are—it's at the end of a specific period of time, apparently at the end of the harvest, because Cain is bringing the fruits of the harvest, thinking that that will impress God, and. It's um, it's designed to give thanks to God, express thanks to God for what he has done and what he has provided. And the third thing we learned is that we see that sacrifice is the basis for fellowship with God. And that is when it begins to uh, relate to the payment payment for sin. So sacrifice, there's the sin payment. There are sacrifices later for cleansing of sin— and there are sacrifices that are uh, gifts of gratitude, tokens of appreciation, or the payment of tribute to God because he's blessed us in a, a certain way. We next see sacrifice brought in in, in uh, Genesis chapter 8. In Genesis chapter 8, at the end of the flood... Genesis chapter 8, Noah uh, sacrifices. Now, again, this, as I pointed out earlier, how did Noah know what was clean and what was unclean? We can infer, I think, legitimately that it's because God had revealed this to man long before, and so they knew it. But we don't know what that was, when that occurred, or the the details of it. But when God told him to take uh, unclean animals in pairs and clean animals by seven onto the ark, Noah didn't say, well, what exactly does that mean, Lord? Please define clean and unclean for me. He already knew what that was. And we see the reason he had the odd number of uh, clean animals was because he took from the clean animals, they were the animals that were appropriate for sacrifice, and he took of the extra clean animal, the seventh of each one, and those were the animals that he offered to God uh, in sacrifice, and this is described at the end of, uh, of chapter 20. And that is, um, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird. Now think about that a minute. There were a lot of clean animals, not as many as there were unclean, but there were a number of different clean animals, not just sheep, goats, and cattle. There were a number of clean animals, and he took from those, from everyone and every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And this is the first time we've had the idea of a burnt offering or that vocabulary introduced into Genesis. So obviously this was something that had been practiced before he went on the ark. He knew what a burnt offering was. He knew what its significance was. 
and he's offering the burnt offerings. And this is a sign of gratitude to God for preserving them through the cataclysm of the flood. And in verse 21, we read, And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as as I have done. So that then, as a divine response to uh, to Noah's sacrifice, God is going to enter into a covenant and bless Noah, and that's at the beginning of chapter uh, chapter nine. So we see that taking place. Now, one of the things I want to go back to is that what takes place as a result of this this judgment? What happens? The cause of this judgment isn't just that human beings were sinful. They were that. But they were sinful in a particular way, and that's described in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And if you want to see expansion of this into the New Testament, then you can look at passages such as um, 1 Peter 3.19. You also have passages uh, in 2 Peter as well as in Jude, I think it's around Jude 8 or 9, 7, 7 through 9, which is talking about these angels who left their first estate and went after strange flesh. And in Genesis 6, it describes them in terms of um, the, their angelic nature. They're the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, verse 2, and this is the terminology that is used in Job 1 and Job 2 to describe all of the angels. It's used in uh, Job 37, uh, 4 through 6, then all the sons of God shouted for joy. The fact that this judgment at the time of the flood is repeated and described in 1 Peter 3 and in, excuse me, 2 Peter 2 and in Jude tells us that uh, the New Testament informs us that this involved something bizarre occurring among the angels. And we're told that the sons of God, that describes angels, they, they're all called sons of God in the Old Testament. The term Beneha Elohim in the Greek, the sons of Elohim, is a term that is always used to describe these angelic beings because angels don't marry and make babies. Every angel is created individually by God, and therefore, as those, as each one is created by God, they are called the sons of God because God is the one who directly created them. And these are fallen angels. They see the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, we've studied this several times in different ways in different passages, but I want to put a dimension to this that I've never taught this before, though I've thought it many times, but I'm going to teach it tonight. Keep your place there, and let's go to the New Testament, and we're going to go to Jude, the, the, the epistle to Jude. It's right before Revelation, very short, easy to get uh, skip right past it. And in Jude, there is the description of these the problem is rebellious believers. That's what Jude's dealing with, those who are rebellious. But, but there's also unbelievers who are apostate. He's dealing with that. But he's using illustrations from the Old Testament to, to illustrate the certainty of God's judgment on those, whether they are unbelievers who have gone into idolatry or whether they are believers who have apostatized. But that's all beside the point. In verse 5, he says, I want to remind you, um, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, that's not talking about belief in God for salvation. It's talking about the instances when God told the Exodus generation not to do certain things or to do certain things, and they didn't believe him, and they disobeyed him. For example, with uh, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron who were priests, that they were only to 
uh, offer authorized incense in the tabernacle. And instead, they got on Amazon.com, and they found some better deals on Amazon Prime Day, and they thought they had some really good incense, and they brought that in because they were defining worship on their own terms. They thought this incense smelled better than what God said, and so they offered this unauthorized incense, and God took their life instantly. Just that's it. They died because they were blaspheming God uh, in, the, in the tabernacle. And at the beginning of this age of worship of the tabernacle and at different ages, God seems to really strike hard those who disobey. And we see that that's probably why God uh, struck Uzzah dead when the ark is jostled and David is bringing the ark to Jerusalem and there were a bunch of errors that were made. But when that happens, it, it, there's something new that's happening with the ark coming to Jerusalem the, that's going to lead to the establishment of the temple on Mount Moriah. And God strikes him dead because we have to, the point is, you have to do everything the way God says to do it. Then you get into the New Testament and you have in Acts chapter 6, Ananias and Sapphira who uh, sell some land and then they lie about it. And when um, and so God strikes, strikes them dead because they lied against the Holy Spirit. Now, if God had continued doing this in either the uh, age of the law or in the church age, then we wouldn't have too many Christians still because a lot of Christians still lie about what they give to the Lord. And it... You know, there were a lot of priests that apostatized and put idols in the temple in the Old Testament. So at the beginning of these stages, God uh, strikes very hard. So that's what happened at, in the beginning of the age of the law as you had uh, Israelites who disobeyed God. For example, at, at, uh, um, as they're going into the land uh, and the spies are going out in Numbers chapter 13, God says to go out and spy out the land and uh, see what I'm going to give to you. He doesn't tell them to see if they can get it because that was God's prerogative to give it to them. And 10 of them disobeyed God. They didn't believe him. So what happened? That whole generation had to die. That's what's being talked about in verse 5. In verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode. That's a really interesting statement. What was their proper domain? That is in the sphere of heaven, obeying God, but and and as angels in their abode, as angels in their angelic makeup, they left their own abode, and it says here that he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now that is. That is also going to be paralleled in Second Peter chapter three, that this is um, this is this, this terrible uh, problem of this angelic rebellion and infiltration uh, of the human race, and so they're in prison during this day, and then their sin is compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's the third example of God's judgment. He, Jude says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, to whom does that pronoun refer? These angels who left their abode. So the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is compared to the sin of these, these angels, these fallen angels in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. So what that is saying is that Sodom and Gomorrah imitated a sexual perversion and a sexual sin on the part of these angels uh, that are described in verse 6. And so what happens is that Back in Genesis 6, is there these marriages are involved with something demonic because they're the sons of God who are doing this. It involves sexual perversion. And when we're back in Genesis chapter 6, 
As I skip back there, as we're back in Genesis chapter 6, we're told something else of importance. We're told that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves for all whom they chose. So they're having marriages, aren't they? What kind of marriages are those? They're demonic. They're sexually perverted. They're going after strange flesh. There's all kinds of perversion that is indicated there, but is not described in detail. And what we see in terms of God's description is, look down at verse 5, it says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that, notice the language here, every intent, not a lot, but every intent, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every and continually. A good translation from the Hebrew. And and it's a very strong statement that, that everything they did was perverted. So here's our picture. You have perverted marriages. You have weddings going on and marriages going on that are sexually deviant and are perverted because it involves humans and angels, but probably a lot more than that. And now I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 24. This is the Olivet Discourse. As most of you know, we've spent a good deal of time when we went through Matthew talking about this. But one of the things that, and I presented a paper on this to the pre-trib conference, conference last year, is that among dispensationalists, there's a disagreement as to um, whether the rapture is mentioned in Matthew chapter 24, especially after, uh, after verse 30. Because you have statements like verse 36, but no one knows the day, no, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And I believe that what that means is that at the time Jesus said this, we don't know when the tribulation will take place or any specific thing within the tribulation because it's going to come after the rapture. The rapture is imminent. We don't know when any of that's going to take place. And then he said, then he makes a comparison. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, if we stopped right there, how would you describe the days of the sons of Noah? The thoughts of man's heart was evil continuously. They're involved in a lot of marriages that are demonic and sexually perverted. And so if you stopped right there and you didn't know what was coming, your thought would be, that's not a good thing to compare it to the days of Noah because that was horrible. And then in the next verse, Jesus says, For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Now, a lot of people have just taken that out of context, ignoring Genesis 6 and ignoring Jude and ignoring Second Peter. And they think, well, see, this has to be the rapture because they're just going through life as per normal. But on the basis of Genesis 6, they're not going through life as normal. And on the basis of Jude, they're involved, the marriages they're involved in are marriages between humans and angels. They're sexually perverted. It's demonic activity. The statement that Jesus is making here, that, that his listeners knew what kind of marriages were going on in Genesis 6. So when he says they're marrying and giving in marriage, they know that that wasn't a good thing in Genesis chapter 6. And so I think that once we thoroughly understand Genesis 6 in Jude and, and Second Peter, we have to come to the conclusion that Jesus' statement there indicates that in the time prior to the second coming of Christ, there will be tremendous sexual perversion and demonic intermarriage, perhaps, all over again. Now, it, those of you who hung in there with me through our uh, three years or so in Revelation, what happens at the midpoint of the, of, of the tribulation? Revelation chapters 12 and 13. Satan and all the fallen angels, one-third of the angels, are thrown out of heaven to the earth. 
And then the picture in the subsequent chapters described the fact that these demons become visible on the earth during the last half of the tribulation. And as I pointed out when we went through that, said, this is really bizarre. This is like science fiction stuff. God, but what God is doing is he's bringing all of the evil of the fallen angels and all and Satan and all of the evil of mankind together at one time. And the whole judgment that comes in the campaign of Armageddon is, is a campaign that involves demons and angels and human beings. And God judges all of the fallen creatures, man and angel at that same time. So that makes perfect sense. Now, what comes out of this demonic union in Genesis 6 is seen in the history of religions. It's seen in the history of various mythologies, whether you're talking about Hittite mythology or Roman mythology, whether you're going back to ancient Sumerian mythology or Canaanite mythology. And you had these stories, these legends that came out of these gods and goddesses that came down and had sexual relations with human beings. In the Canaanite religions, you had El, who's the chief god, and he's somewhat uh, old and not very uh, virile, and he is being overthrown by his son, Baal. Now, you have the same thing over when you get into Greek and Roman uh, Roman mythology, you have uh, uh, the the great god is is Uranus, and his son is uh, I believe it's it's Zeus. Do I have that right, or am I mixing Roman and Greek? Uh, maybe mixing Roman and Greek. But um, you know, Zeus is this, Zeus or Jupiter are doing the same thing. They're coming in and they're overthrowing. Uh, the great god uh, Saturnus or Uranus, and they're overthrowing that great god or El. They're all the same person, just different names. And then you have this upstart god getting involved in a lot of of uh, different sexual relations with with human beings. Zeus uh, gets involved with uh, Niobe, and as a result. Uh, she gives birth to Argus, who is the king of Argos. A-R-G-U-S is the king of Argos. You have Zeus and Europa. Europa is the human daughter of the king of Tyre or Sidon. Notice it's probably brought over into Greek first, or into um, uh, yeah, into Greek, and then over into Rome afterwards, but it's borrowed from the Phoenicians, and that's where you get Baal religion and all of these things. And she gives birth to the half-human, half-god half uh, Minos, the king of Crete. You have Zeus and Alamini, who is, uh, she's human, he's the god, and she gives birth to uh, Heracles or Hercules, who is a demigod. He's half. He's the product of this god-human um, union, and so you have a number of examples of those in in literature. And you know, to placate these gods, what do they do? They offer sacrifices, and they build temples. And they put images in those temples. And see, all of those practices go, go back to a common origin, if you understand the Bible. They go back to a common background, but they're perverted and distorted. So they all have a germ of truth in them, a measure of truth in them, but they have been twisted and they have been, uh, they have been perverted. And what happens, for example, in... The, when Noah uh, has this sacrifice, that when that is told uh, in the Babylonian uh, flood epic, which is the Gilgamesh epic, and uh, Utnapishtim, who is, the, uh, who is the Babylonian Noah, that when he builds a sacrifice, then all of the God, Babylonian gods come down to look at it in the form of flies, 
And these flies, you can read about it in the uh, Ugarit narratives, and the flies come down and they swarm all around uh, the sacrifice. And, of course, their chief god is who? Baal. And he is called Baal Zabal. When you get into the New Testament, he's called Baal Zabal. And what does that mean? It means the Lord of the Flies. That's what that comes from. It goes right back to Genesis chapter 6 and the perversion of that story in the Babylonian uh, Babylonian mythology. You had other things that are also kind of twisted and perverted. I used to, uh, I've always joked about this. It's, it's true. Most people, when they read the old King James Version and they read about um, strong drink offerings, Right? We have strong drink offerings. And most of us living in a post-distillery world think of strong drink as something like vodka or scotch or bourbon or rye whiskey or something of that nature. But they didn't have distilleries like that in the ancient world that we know of. And, in fact, the Hebrew word that is translated uh, strong drink is actually means barley beer. Beer was very common in the ancient world. Uh, that it had a lot. Beer has a lot of uh, nutrients in it, and a lot of times when the slaves were going off, all they carried with them was their little canteen filled with beer, and that was their lunch. It wasn't maybe as alcoholic as what we have today, but that's what they uh, that's what they had. And so, in the can- we have evidence discovered archaeologically of these containers taken into Canaanite uh, Canaanite worship centers and altars where they would leave beer there for the gods. So you have similarity. So what happens now as we go forward through Genesis is you have something distinctive taking place with Abraham. And last time we talked about uh, what's in a name and what is talked about in the Old Testament in terms of calling on the name of the Lord. We saw this in Genesis 4.26, that at the time of Seth's son Enosh, who's going to be the third generation, men began to call on the name of the Lord. And, And I asked the question, what does that mean? We traced it through in an overview last time, but I want to talk a little bit more about it now. When you get to Abraham in Genesis 12:8, which is a crucial passage, Genesis 12 is so important for a lot of different reasons. It's where you have the initial promise of God to Abraham in Genesis 12:1 through 3, where he tells him to leave his home and go to the land that he will show. He doesn't tell him where he's taking him, taking him to the land I'll show you, and promises that he will make him a great nation and will bless him, make his name great. In other words, he will become uh, famous and prosperous and wealthy and says, you shall be a blessing. That's a command. And so God is saying, I'm going to take you someplace so you can bless the people there. And then God makes the well-known promise, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham departs. He goes to Haran, uh, where his uh, family is. He's not originally a Sumerian. He'd been living in Ur of the Chaldees, which is down near the Persian Gulf. And now he goes back to northern Syria, which is where his family was from. Um, and he's there for a while until his father dies, and then he continues the journey to the land of Canaan. And in verse 7 we read, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So that's the first specific land promise that is given. And then we're told, There he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now what's interesting there is that in the contrast with all these polytheistic religions they didn't have gods who appeared to them this is something different Uh, we're told in joshua that abraham's family as they had gone through their movements that they had adopted other gods and goddesses and these other cultures but that they still held on to this god they knew as yahweh And now this God, Yahweh Elohim, 
appears to Abraham. None of these other gods ever appeared to anybody. Wow. So he's learning something new about this God. And so he builds an altar to him. And that's described in verse 8. And he moved from there uh, in Shechem to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So he's building an altar there, and he is offering a sacrifice on that altar. That's the only reason you'd build an altar like that. He's going to offer a sacrifice, and he's going to do something different. But if we look at the text, that's at the beginning of the, of the story of Abraham. And some 50 years later, just before he's going to be asked to offer his son Isaac to God, we're told that he's south in Beersheba, and he planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. So he learned something new about God, that he is eternal. He is life without end. And so there's this, this shift that takes place. He's expanding his understanding and his knowledge of God. And that's important to understand what happens in terms of uh, the expansion of worship under Abraham and under, uh, under the uh, patriarchs. Just to remind you, if we go forward to Exodus to understand the concept of what it meant to proclaim the name of the Lord, we're told in Exodus 34, 5, that the Lord Yahweh is descending in the cloud to speak to Moses, and he stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, Exodus 34 is following the golden calf incident. This is when Moses has been up on the mountain with God, and for, for uh, 40 days and 40 nights, he's up on the mountain with God, and he's receiving the Ten Commandments. When he comes down, the people have convinced Aaron to melt down all their gold and silver, jewelry, and he's built this magnificent golden calf and said, this is the God who rescued you from slavery in Egypt. Bow down and worship him. And so the people have given themselves over to idolatry, while Moses is receiving the law, and as a result, they have to be judged, and he calls on the Levites, and they uh, rally to his side, and then they kill a host of Israelites, his divine discipline on the nation for their idolatry. Well, what is God going to do now? Is he going to wipe everybody out? And so we have a revelation of who God is following that sin in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. And so Moses is back up on the mountain with God in Exodus 34, and God is proclaiming his own name. So this tells us and is going to inform us what that means for God to proclaim his name. And in verse 5, which I just read, uh, and then after that, the Lord passed before Moses, Moses is the lowercase him, passed before him and proclaimed. So this is where we learn of the Lord. When the Lord calls on his own name, what does he do? He proclaims this, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim. Now, what's he doing? He's describing his own essence. But notice that in this passage, he's describing his essence in terms of the characteristics that relate to the forgiveness of Israel's sin. He doesn't go through his omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence and immutability here. He is talking, uh, revealing those aspects of his essence that relate to this horrible sin that they've committed and talking about his own mercy and forgiveness. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Now that's good news if you've just really blown it in idolatry with the Lord, with the golden calf incident. And now God is proclaiming that he is a God of mercy and grace, and he abounds in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. All the three big words for sin are there, so it covers everything. And by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children. So he's not going to do that. He is a God of forgiveness. 
Now, in Exodus 33:19, just before this, God is doing the same thing with Moses. He says to Moses, he says, he's revealed, Moses is asked to, to have a closer understanding and revelation of God. And God says, well, you can't look directly at me. You're going to hide back in the corner and I'm going to pass before you. And then he describes his essence. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. So it tells us again that proclaiming the name of the Lord has to do with uh, revealing his essence and his attributes and describes him. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so we learn in this episode that God's character includes mercy and forgiving sin, grace and patience and goodness, I listed grace twice, and truth. These are God's attributes. And in fact, what happens is this is such a foundational statement by God that it's alluded to, referred to, and quoted from again and again through Deuteronomy, through the rest of the uh, rest of the Pentateuch, all the way through the Psalms, and through the prophets. It becomes, as it were, a creed. Now, the reason I bring that in is most of us come out of a background where if you didn't grow up in some sort of high church worship where you recited the creeds, then you're a lot like me. I didn't grow up with that. My first church, they recited the Apostles' Creed every single morning. Every single Sunday morning, they recited the, the, the uh, Apostles' Creed. And I thought, well, that just seems like it's just rote, and it can become rote and routine, and you're not even engaging your brain. Uh, I was talking to a pastor, a friend of mine, not long ago, and he said what's interesting is people who grow up in high church, more formal worship, uh, more liturgical, where they're reciting the creeds, that they don't know what they mean. This is just what they go over every night, every every Sunday morning. They just say it, and their minds aren't engaged. They just kind of go through the motions. It's just ritual without explanation because they don't understand what it means. Now, that's not true in every case, but that's true in a lot of cases. But what we see is this whole idea of reciting what the congregation believes that didn't begin with high church Roman Catholicism or high church Presbyterianism, it begins with the Mosaic law. It begins with Israel. And you see these things like Sunday morning, the last couple of Sunday mornings, we've read, uh, we've read the scriptures responsively. And I mentioned this to a couple of people that, well, I didn't know that, that when I remember when I was Six, seven, eight, nine years old at Baraka Church that we always read responsibly. I think er almost every church did. That was common. That was before all these different translations came in. Everybody's got a King James Bible, so everybody could stand up and read the Scripture responsibly. And when we did that, I was talking with a couple of different people. One person said, that's just so medieval. Well... If you have a certain perspective, they did that in the Middle Ages, but they didn't originate it. Somebody else said, well, that just seems Roman Catholic. Well, you know, it's the same thing, but they didn't originate it. When did responsive reading start? Well, I think it started after, after Sinai, and at least the earliest indication Scripture would be where? Who's, being, who's sharp tonight? What? That's right, Mount Gerizim and Mount, Mount um, Ebal. When the tribes had conquered Israel and they come into the land and they go to, and they, they've conquered Joshua and I and Bethel in that area, they go to Shechem, to Shechem. And you have Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And half the tribes are up on Mount Gerizim, the other half are up on Mount Ebal. And what do they do? Antiphonally, that means one side, then the other. They recite the blessings of the law and the curses of the law. Because you know as well as I do that when I'm just reading Scripture, it's easy for your brain to tune out. But when you have to read, it engages more of your senses than it does if somebody's just reading it to you. You, you pay a little more attention to it. And that's what was going on in Israel. They have to know 
the they and they didn't have their own uh, little prayer books so that they could read the blessings and the cursings in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 29. They had to know it by heart. And they are reciting those blessings and cursings. And we come up and we get into the Psalms, and a lot of the Psalms, by the way they're laid out, we know that they were sung antiphonally. And we come to some that have a a refrain that is like a chorus that... um, as recited by the congregation that the priest would say the first line and the congregation would say the second line. So this this is not part of, it's not legalism, but it's not mandated in Scripture anywhere. It's where God gives us that freedom within certain strict boundaries to develop on the basis of our understanding of Scripture uh, creative ways to worship God. Now, as soon as I use the word creative, you can think of all kinds of weird stuff that goes on today. That's because they're philosophically ignorant, theologically impoverished, and culturally juvenile. And they're, you know, I had a conversation, I was telling Bob Gare about this today. I had a conversation with my dad many, many years ago, and my dad would ask me these kinds of questions. He says, why do you think people are creative? Well, I don't know. He says, because they... They think outside the box. They reject boundaries. They don't accept boundaries. They don't even accept them as there, and they do something different. But as a Christian, you know there there's an area out there where there are boundaries. But within those boundaries, there's freedom to think within those boundaries, and that's creativity. Now, some of us, you know, we like those little tight little boundaries, and we stay within those boundaries. Uh, but but the biblical boundaries means you have to really think about what the Bible says and what kind of parameters are there. And there's very few people who are in the creative arts today in our um, licentious society. See, we're here's one of my favorite words: we're epistemologically licentious. We are metaphysically licentious. That means we're idolaters. In terms of our understanding of ultimate reality, we just want to make it up as we go along. In the realm of knowledge, epistemology, we just want to make it up as we go along. We ignore the fact that there are boundaries, and um, and that leads to lots of problems. But what we see is when David is developing worship under the guidance of God, he's developing orchestras, and he's developing the choirs, and it's all within a certain structure. It's not just free-flowing creativity. It is creative within that, that kind of a structure. And so the same thing happens in churches where you can develop within a certain structure. And I started off talking about how this became a creed, and I wanted to put an example of a creed up on the board. Now, most of you didn't grow up in Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox or probably High Church Presbyterian or Episcopal churches. Some of you may have. But if you've come out of a out of a more informal church background and you've been well taught biblically, then when you recite the creeds, they mean more to you than they do to people in these other churches. I remember the first time I went to a Presbyterian church. It was down uh, the Beltway here, Grace Presbyterian, probably around 1984. And I went in, and they cited two or three different creeds, and I thought, wow, that's incredible. Of course, I had spent many years studying church history, and I knew the history behind those creeds and the bloodshed and the fighting that occurred to to, to build these fabulous doctrinal statements that are foundation and these are the foundation for the doctrinal statements we have as churches and they would recite these and so i'm sitting there i'm thinking this has such meaning it's profound but most people are just and they're just reciting rote and they have they're not entering into what it says at all but listen to this i believe in god the father almighty Great statement. You're starting off with the Father. He is God the Father Almighty. Uh, And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. So immediately we're introduced to the second person of the Trinity as the Son of God, who's our Lord. He's born by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, 
So we have the uh, acceptance of the uh, a virgin conception and, and birth. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate and was buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead and in the Holy Spirit. So it's Trinitarian. It's simple, but it's a reaffirmation of the basics of what we believe. Whoever wrote this and fine-tuned it, if you've ever written anything, you know it takes a long time to really condense it and get it just right. Whoever did this wrote this sometime in the probably mid to late second century. And I've heard some people say, we should never cite these creeds, blah, 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 blah. Well, have you ever written anything that people are still reciting 2,000 years later? That's how profound this this really is. It's a great condensed version of what we what we believe. But anyway, so we look at Exodus 34 and calling on the name of the Lord. We're rehearsing. It's a teaching opportunity to remind pe- people who God is, His attributes, His sovereignty, uh, and this is what we learn from from Abraham. We look at our attributes here. I've inserted holiness because holiness. I've heard many theologians, and it influenced me, say that holiness is a combination of his righteousness and justice. It's not. Holiness governs every attribute. It means he is uniquely this way. No, Nothing else in the universe is like God in his sovereignty. Nothing is like God in his righteousness. Nothing is like God in his justice. Nothing is like God in his love. That's what holiness means, is something unique and distinct. Nothing is like God in his eternality, in his knowledge, his omniscience, his presence, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his power, his veracity, his immutability. So we go to Genesis chapter uh, 12. We're looking at this incident that 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 this first uh, mention of Abraham building an altar and calling on the name of the Lord. What precedes that is really interesting. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 5, Then Abraham took, Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. What does that mean when it says the people they had acquired? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Slaves, right? That's not what it says. Different language is used when it talks about the acquisition of slaves, different verbs. The verb here is the verb uh, asa, to make. That Literally, it is saying those whom they had made in Haran. How do you make a soul? It's, that's, that's the literal word there. It says the people, it's the souls. The souls whom they had made in Haran. How do you make a soul? Well, we know that Adam and Sarah, I mean, Abraham and Sarah didn't make any souls because they were childless. Okay? Now, they made a lot of souls there. How did they make them? They proclaimed the name of the Lord. These were converts to their worship of Yahweh. Now, when we look at the passage that comes up in Genesis 14, where you have Abram raise an army to go rescue his nephew Lot, he takes with him 318 young men, soldiers in his own household. He's not taking the old men that have been with him for 30 or 40 years. He's taking 318 young men who are battle-ready, to go against the the four kings that have invaded uh, invaded the land, and so the point that I am making is he's got a huge retinue of maybe a thousand or more people that are traveling with him. This is like a huge Bedouin tribe. Uh, they're traveling with him, and of those, he's taking three hundred and eighteen. He's got three hundred and eighteen young men who are ready to go into battle. And there were others that were with him, the, son, the sons of the Hittites, uh, the sons of um, 
that were living there in the Hebron area, and they go with him. So he's got more than just the 318, but those were born in his household. So these are these aren't slaves. These are those who've been uh, been converted with him, and so they're going to go into uh, go into battle now. Um, what we learn from just looking at this initial example is that worship is proclamation, and it's talking about who God is. Abraham, when he builds his altar, is telling people about God. Final thing I want to talk about tonight is that when we are engaged in ritual, ritual can be interpreted all kinds of ways. If you were to walk into Shechem, and it's 2000 and 2100 B.C., and you look on one side of the road, and there's this Canaanite, and he's got a rock altar, and he's burning an animal on the altar. And you look on the other side of the road, and there's Abraham, and he's got a rock altar, and he's burning an, an animal on that altar. How are you going to know what the difference is? By what they're saying. You listen to the Canaanite, he's saying one thing. You listen to Abraham, he's proclaiming the God that he worships, the singular, solitary, almighty God of the universe, and he's talking about his essence. So that that this worship is a proclamation. It's talking about who God is, how to have a relationship with him, and how to live and glorify him. It's evangelistic at that time. And this is what Abraham does as he goes goes through the entire land. So we'll stop there. See, I didn't make it out of Genesis. I knew it wouldn't happen. And we'll come back and start with uh, Genesis 14 uh, next time. Okay? Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to think through the development of worship in the uh, early uh, centuries of the age of Israel and building our own understanding of what it means Uh, to worship you, to proclaim who you are, to tell others who you are, what you have done, and how to have a relationship with you and how to grow and mature in that relationship. Uh, Help us to understand these things and may we contemplate them in such a way that it uh, changes the way we think about what we're doing when we come together as a body of believers to worship you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.